0: Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and radio.com. Here's your host. Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game Podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks, what have they been feeding the Nets down in Orlando? My original plan for this podcast was to discuss the huge game against the Magic later today, but as you well know, Brooklyn made it moot, meaningless. Because these guys shocked the world, or at least the Las Vegas Bookies, you know, when they beat the title contending Bucks and Clippers to wrap up the seventh seed in the East by Sunday night. I'll get into what this all means, including a little preview of next week's first round against the Raptors. And to help me with that, I've got a special guest for you the highly respected writer from the New York Post. Ryan Lewis is back and will be joining us shortly, so sit back and relax, should be a good show, and again, thanks for bearing with me in the station as we iron out the kinks with Apple Podcasts, my understanding is that they have identified the issue and are working to get it fixed, still, you know, glad you're tuning in on Radio.com, Stitcher, or whichever platform you're using. Anyway, how about those Nets? Look, I'm always the first to admit when I get it wrong, and I clearly didn't see this coming. You know, figuring they'd maybe go two and six in the bubble. You know, given the decimated roster and all that. But they won four of the six when it mattered, and credit everyone involved, including Coach Jack Vaughn. You know, even though he gave me pains after that Washington game when he said the plan all along was to allow Thomas Bryant to shoot one uncontested three after another. I didn't understand his rotations, and felt he was falling into the Kenny Atkinson trap of accepting momentum shifts instead of calling timeouts and making adjustments. You know, how those 8 nothing runs would typically evolve into 18-2 runs, remember? But, overall, I'd say that Vaughn has adjusted. After that Boston blowout the day after the Milwaukee Miracle, I remember talking to a friend about how I wanted to see the Nets go with a starting lineup of Karis Levert. Garrett Temple, Joe Harris, Royan Scrooots, and Jared Allen. You know, so the Nets wouldn't always have to be the smallest team on the court, be more switchable on defense, things like that. So guess who started the next two games versus the Kings and the Clippers? Yep, Karis LeVert, Garrett Temple, Joe Harris, Royan Scrooots, and Jared Allen. Wish I could say that I had a pipeline into Vaughn's ear, but I'll settle for the coincidence. In any event, Nets offense has been humming ripping twine straight out of the gate. Going into today's Orlando game, the Nets were ranked second among the 22 teams in the bubble in both first quarter points and offensive rating. And whereas Brooklyn's 34% was the league's fifth worst three-point shooting team pre-pandemic, they've been shooting at a more league average 36.4% clip since. And this without Jamal Crawford, you know, who is supposed to inject Brooklyn's offense with his explosive scoring. As you know, Crawford didn't even play in the first two games and then tweaked his hamstring after just six minutes of action against Milwaukee. I'll ask Brian Lewis about his status in a little bit because the Nets sure could use another creator to attack that frisky Raptors defense. As for the Nets' D, well, it still ain't perfect and nowhere close to what they'll need to be effective in the playoffs. But again, it couldn't get any worse than that Boston game. Let's just say that I've seen fewer of those, you know, coming around the screen, walking to uncontested three-point looks allowed. you know, with Allen now creeping up a tad higher in pick-and-roll coverage, even switching sometimes. They've even been rebounding at a decent rate. Most importantly, they've been playing hard. Total buy-in from everyone. However, you know, therein lies the rub, as they say. I'm not going to go all negative, you know, how could I? But, yeah, and this huge but. I have to be skeptical about what the Nets' bubble victims have been doing. And I'm not just talking about stars managing loads. I've been watching the games around the league. Many of them have been highly competitive, probably more than I expected, given that so many teams have already locked in their slots or considered moving up and down immaterial. I mean, does it really matter to the Heat or the Pacers who's fourth or fifth? no home court advantage to fight for, so I have to believe that many of these efforts have been, shall we say, selective. You're not seeing a whole lot of NBA-level defense in many of these games, and I have to believe that the intensity will be ratcheted up big time next week when it's playoff time. Like, you know, the Bucks, top team in the league in defensive rating, Clippers are fifth. How engaged were they really when the Nets rang up 40 and 45 points in their respective first quarters? I can tell you that the Raptors will be very engaged when they begin their title defense. To me, no team comes close to the way they defend. Starts out on the perimeter, the way Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet get into ball handlers and blow up screens. Just getting into their sets without turning the ball over will be cumbersome for Brooklyn's guards. And even when the Nets do run their plays, no team rotates as hard or as well as Toronto. Opponents have shot just 33.5% from three on them this season. 30.4% in the bubble. My God. And if you think that leaves them susceptible inside, think again. They're big up front with depth, which is why only the Bucs allowed fewer points per game in the paint this season. Remember Rondé Hollis Jefferson? Guard is one of the better Nets defenders in the past few years. Well, he goes to Toronto last offseason and can't get on the court. Why? Coach Nick Nurse says he wasn't defending hard enough. And this series, we'll have to see how Nurse manages a rotation, whether he opts to match by using Rondé when the Nets go smaller in their second unit, or maybe he goes the opposite, you know, with guys like Serge Ibaka and Chris Boucher together up front. But getting back to the Nets, this is really the only reason they're here, to see who can bring it at this time of year. And you know what I mean by year. Let's just say that many of these guys' first playoff go rounds didn't go so well against the Sixers. Pretty much everyone other than Lavert, Allen quivered in the presence of Joel Embiid. Garutz played like the rookie he was. Even Harris disappointed. So much so that I had to ask around to check that he wasn't injured. I mean, he was missing the wide-open looks, too. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. NBA GMs understand that the playoffs are different. It's a separate evaluation template. Some guys they say are strictly regular season guys. you know when opponents don't have the time or energy to really dissect their tendencies in a series, you get to know the guy your guardings moves and counter moves. So what do you got next? So for instance, you know all this season we've been hearing, seeing really how Harris has developed into more than just a three-point shooter, you know how his driving and passing have become weapons. So it'll be interesting to me to see if this narrative holds, you know, when OG Ananabe is tasked with locking him down in like game three with help from those pesky guards swiping and Biggs rim protecting. Again, what does Harris have next in his bag? And this goes for Vaughn too. I know you can't argue with his results to date. The man has defeated probably the best three teams in the league in his nine-game sample as Nets head coach. But before we anoint him as the caretaker for when Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and everyone else is in the fold for next season, let's see how Vaughn fares in the brightest lights. Will he understand that games can get too far away from you in the first quarter as well as in the fourth? Will he stubbornly stick to his rotations despite evidence that some parts aren't working? Does he adjust his schemes for when the Raptors have it figured out, or will he abide by analytics that... May be statistically proven over 82 game sample sizes, but are worthless in the heat of key moments. You know, I wrote this on Twitter a few days ago. Don't be fooled by all the praise in Vaughn's direction these days. People lie, or just being nice. You know, I'm guilty of this too, because you know, I bring clips to this podcast from players and coaches on other players and coaches. I don't know. It's still cool to me to hear, but not once did anyone say to me. You know, that guy's no good. Closest I came was last year when Cleveland coach Larry Drew had no idea who Roadie was, even though he'd been starting for long enough that he should have appeared on film or on scouting reports. You know, Drew was clueless, which made it funny. Not a knock on Karutz. No, everyone's great. That's the standard line. And that includes Vaughn. I repeat, I, I know the results back it up, but so did the results back up Kenny Atkinson. I mean, he got absolute garbage to play competitive basketball for a few years. He had a winning record last season with Levert missing 40-something games. He was hailed as a development guru. Remember KD at Media Day? He talked about how he studied Kenny's coaching on YouTube before making his decision. By March, all of a sudden, he wasn't the right man for the job? No, the Nets stars knew it beforehand. They saw all the same things that you've been hearing on this podcast the indecisiveness, the marriage to the system, etc. So my point is that we don't really know yet what those who matter think of Vaughn. My guess, and it's only a guess, is that they have other people in mind. They want to be coached by someone who's been in big games. And you know, I've mentioned Ty Lu a number of times, but again, the Nets will have competition for his services. New Orleans is the latest Lou hotspot. And if Brooklyn strikes out, I don't know who's up next. I went over a few weeks ago why I can't see Greg Popovich coming here. So who else? Jason Kidd? Mark Jackson? Please know. A name to keep in mind, though it's a real long shot, Nate McMillan, You know who I hear could be on the outs in Indiana. A lot will depend on whether their cheap owner wants to eat McMillan's contract. Maybe if there's offset language, should he land elsewhere, the Nets could get him. I don't know, you know. like I said, it's beyond a reach, but to me, he's a pretty good coach. And Vaughn, for all he's accomplished in a short time, you know, he still sports a sub-300 coaching record. You know, I get it, Orlando stunk, but the word was that he was also in over his head. He may have learned a few things in the last five years, but we can't really tell if it's enough until we see him in the playoffs. And fortunately, we'll have that opportunity next week. And now to give us another perspective on all this, let's bring in Brian Lewis of the New York Post. Here's the clip. I'm so happy to welcome back to the City Game Podcast and to the Nets beat in general. Always a great read in the New York Post, Mr. Brian Lewis. Brian, thanks for giving me some of your time today.
2: Oh, no problem. So, Brian, I
1: know how out of it I am after losing access, but even though you're not on the Orlando campus either, I was hoping you could explain to me this. What's gotten into the Nets? I mean, we we're recording this before the Magic game Since the Nets made it moot by clinching the 7th seed Winning, their, winning uh, four of their first six games But I gotta ask, was it just the fluky nature of the end of a regular season Or something that can be sustainable?
2: Well, I mean, I guess that's the million dollar question Or whatever the salary of the next coach will be <laughs> um,
1: We'll get to that I later guess...
2: I guess that's the question. I mean, listen, I. some teams don't change much from pre-pandemic to now roster-wise, but you can't – you almost have to look at this as two separate seasons. Almost. I mean, there's, there was such a large gap between when play suspended on March 11th and now uh, that you almost have to look at this as two seasons – almost like a, I don't know, a Mexican soccer season. Um, so
1: For those of a, you who know what that is.
2: <laughs> okay, well, you almost have to look at this as, as season one versus season two. Um, this Nets team, not only do they have a vastly different roster than what you saw for the majority of the season, but they're playing a somewhat different brand of basketball. Um, this team is really confident. They genuinely believe that they can beat teams, whoever it is, that's put in front of them. Uh, and stylistically, they even look a little different. Um, the teams that we saw before, you know, when Kenny was coaching, that was, that was a very analytics-driven team. Completely. Um, this team, you look up and you see mid-range jumpers left and right. Right. <laughs> Um, it's a very different-looking squad, very different-looking team, aside from the fact that their roster looks completely different.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about the offense because it's in such high gear right now. You know, Karis LeVert, Joe Harris, even Jared Allen chipping in. I mean, are they at being asked to do different things than they did pre-pandemic?
2: Yes, to some extent, yes, they are. Um, now, in Jared Allen's case, obviously – there's just, there's individual growth. I mean, he's become a better player. Uh, he's also more, he, he came in and I think he surprised himself at his conditioning. Uh, I don't think even he expected he would be in this good shape physically coming into the restart. Uh, so that has kind of shown itself out there on the court. Karras uh, has been playing on the ball. Now, if you ask him, he'll tell you that he really believes that's his natural position. He does not view himself as say a small forward or a shooting guard. He has viewed himself as a point guard, which he played some at Michigan a lot coming up, which he played, uh, what was it? Maybe two years ago on the second unit. Um, but since he's been put on the ball, he's looked like a revelation. Um, And also putting him on the ball also gives you a a team that was woefully undersized. It gives them a little more residual height throughout the lineup. Um, And as far as what they're being asked to do, they're moving the ball, they're sharing the ball. And I think, like I said, we got back to it. They've cut down on their turnovers because they're seem much more confident in what they are doing. And that is just hunting for the best shot Possible for them Not necessarily The best shot That the analytic team Is telling them <laughs> Yeah, is,
1: the uh, is that a knock on Kenny Anderson? Kenny Atkinson? Kenny Anderson um,
2: No, I mean, I you know I, I didn't intend it that way I'm just saying this is what This is the difference In this team and the way they are Currently playing Versus, you know, what we Might have seen earlier in the year now granted also remember this is a this is a wholly different roster than what you saw in training camp you know the team but it's worse it's worse. it's so yes, just it's a much worse <laughs> roster it's a much worse roster no disrespect to any of the guys that are in the bubble but it is a vastly inferior roster so my point is it is possible. You know, that Jacques Vaughn looks at this roster and says, okay, I can't operate the offense the way Kenny operated it, nor can I operate it. Now, you'd have to ask him, give him some truth serum. He might say, I can't operate it the way I intended to operate it, uh, you know, if they had played the Warriors when when the season got canceled. You understand what I'm saying? He may Absolutely, look at it. Yeah, say, I, you know. I can't play the way I wanted to play because, frankly, I don't have the horses. So I these, this team has to share the ball because if they don't share the ball, they're going to shoot 34%. They're 33%. If they don't share the ball, we're going to lose by 30 That may very well be what he's saying in the way he's constructed this offense because this is not, and he'll tell you this, this is not, the system that he necessarily planned to be running once play resumed. This isn't what his idea was, but they've lost so many players that he's had to rethink things. Now I credit him for being flexible enough to do that. And I credit him for being a good enough leader to get the guys to buy in to his on the fly changes because neither of those things are necessarily a given.
1: Correct. Well, I'm talking about the Nets' high-powered offense with Brian Lewis of the New York Post. Brian, you know, the Nets could conceivably get more explosive if Jamal Crawford returns uh, from his hamstring injury. I saw your tweet about him earlier. You know What's the latest, and what do you think the chances are that he returns next week for the playoffs?
2: I, you know, I... Again, it's difficult for me to say, and I, you know, you know me, I hate doing the prediction thing. My supposition, if you're asking me, is that I, I would figure he would play at some point during the playoffs. I do not think this is a thing where he got an injury and he's been put on the shelf and you won't see him again until next year's training camp, either with the Nets or someplace else. I don't think it's to that severe level. Um, I think if it were a tear, which is quite severe, which I've personally done myself, I think we would know about it right. because I think at that point you'd be getting surgery. Um, so even within you, within the realm of a strain or a pull, you still have different levels of severity. But just judging on what other players have said, where they are saying, oh, we can't wait to get Jamal back. As opposed to, oh, that's a really tough break. It would have been great if we could have had Jamal. And just judging on what Jacques said today, where he says, I don't expect to see him in the next two games, but he's consistently said, I'm looking forward to getting him back. I think you'll see him in the playoffs at some point,
1: yes. No update as to what he's been doing, because that's sometimes a key. I remember with the whole Curry thing, I didn't think he was coming back until I heard he was, you know, working. He was shooting because of the shoulder injuries. Is he allowed to run? Is he allowed to cut? Is he allowed to practice? You know, those sort know of steps.
2: Of yes, we do not know as of yet, no. Okay.
1: Well, anyway, you know, securing the seventh seed, you know, a lot of people are so happy they don't get to play the Bucks. You know, it's, the first round is not going to be a picnic. You know, the Raptors have been really, really good, even after losing Kawhi Leonard. And so from what you've seen of them, what should the Nets' three biggest concerns be in this coming series?
2: I mean, we could uh, list 20,
1: but the, the top three.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, for one, the Raptors' defense is frighteningly disruptive. Oh, my God. Uh, they turn I'm people, people over. This. They turn people over left and right. Now, as I said, turnovers have been a problem for this Nets team almost all season. So that plays into the Raptors' hands. Now, as I said, they've dramatically cut their turnovers, uh, you know, since the restart. You know, they went from being, don't hold me to the number, I think maybe 25th in the league in turnover ratio going into the restart uh, to being maybe second or third (laughs) during the restart. So it has gone from weakness to strength But the Raptors are the sort of team that can put that to the test Um, The Raptors length, of course, is a serious issue And as we've stated, the Nets are woefully undersized Now, if you're playing Karras at the point That helps and gives you some residual height throughout the lineup But those are issues Um, And of course, the fact that the Raptors are just flat out damn good (laughs) <laughs> have winning DNA and they know how to win. Uh, and I think may even have overachieved in what they've done so far this year. Uh, I think theirs is a fantastic coach. So there are a number of things that would concern me going into that series. But like I said, they seem confident that no matter who's put in front of them, if they play right and concentrate on themselves, that they have a fighting chance. We'll see if that's
1: true. Okay, Brian. I'm Brian Lewis, the New York Post, just a couple more for you, if you don't mind. I want to focus in on that second concern of yours, which is, you know, the Raptors' size advantage. I want to get your view on how the Nets should manage their own front court rotation. Uh, as, as you know, the Raptors aren't just big, they're tough. So I, I think two players who really have to step up, Rodeon's Karutz. And because I'm no fan of TLC, I'm looking at Justin Anderson. I think the game against the Clippers, I think he gave them a really big boost when that game could have gotten out of control. And he he got into Kawhi a little bit. And he rebounded. He hit a three. I think he's a guy they might have to turn to to play tough in in a playoff series that will be tough. Am I asking too much?
2: Uh well, it's not asking too much. I mean, he is for one, he is physically quite tough. Um he's also clearly shown some mental toughness. Uh, I, I I've become a fan. I like him. Um It's kind of difficult for me though to pick their rotations because I haven't I haven't been able to get a, a solid grasp. On exactly how he's going to use his rotations. Sometimes he surprises me. Um, more than a few times, he has surprised me. Yeah. Um, you know. And then there was a game where I was sure Dante Hall was going to play a ton of minutes, and then he got like three fouls in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what the else? thing is,
1: you know, if he puts like TLC on a Baca or a Siakam, you know, that's asking for trouble. Do you agree? Yes,
2: I would agree wholeheartedly. TLC. TLC is a little slight for that. Um, And whatever you might say about Justin, he's not slight.
1: Well, He's Um, not tall, but he's tough. That's the difference. No,
2: but he's, he's thick though. He's thick through the shoulders. He's thick through the chest. He's strong and he's physically tough. Um, If that, if I'm forced to choose between those two in that matchup, I think Justin could stand up better physically. Yes.
1: We agree. So before I let you go, I can't do it without asking you about the coaching situation. You've teased it earlier. You know, Vaughn's been getting due praise, you know, for his results to date. But can we agree that the playoffs are a different animal, that the Nets could very well be outmanned and outcoached in this series, that both can be true, and maybe we need to wait before proclaiming anything about the future? And what are your sources telling you?
2: I mean, it's certainly not, listen, it's not out of the realm of possibility for them to get out coached in this series. As I said, I think he's a fantastic coach. You know, I mean, when you consider what Toronto has done losing their best player. And when you look at Toronto's record this year, which unless I'm mistaken, is better than the Clippers or, well, let me look, I'm, I'm not even sure. offhand, But essentially similar to the Clippers record. After losing their best player, yeah, I, I think I think Toronto has a coaching advantage most nights, not just against the Nets. I think almost every night they have a coaching advantage. That's how much respect I have for him. I think he's great, um, and clearly Toronto will have a talent advantage. So yes, I, I don't think that I don't think that's a shock or a strong statement to say that Toronto will have both a talent advantage. And could very well have a coaching advantage as well as a talent advantage. I don't think that's surprising at all. But like I said, you know, this, the bubble, <laughs> weird things have happened <laughs> in this bubble. Just, yeah, but it,
1: The playoffs, I think, I, you know, I think the teams are going to be a lot more engaged. It's the word I've been using in the podcast, you know, Milwaukee, the Clippers, you could tell from their coaches expression, that the team was; those teams were not really engaged, especially on the defensive end. Yes. Now, at, you know Toronto, you know they play hard all the time. You know they do. They're allowing like thirty percent three-point shooting in the bubble. So, you know, the, when the Nets play you know a team like that, it's going to be different, and you're going to have to adjust. You're going to have to think quickly. You can't wait till an eight-nothing run becomes eighteen to two before you start making switches. So that's what I want to see from Vaughn. Is that fair?
2: That's fair. And you, you touched on Toronto's defense, which is even more impressive when you consider that scoring is up precipitously in the bubble. If you look at offense, the offense has been up.
1: Yeah, because it's practice shooting.
2: That's Exactly. <laughs> well, there's also practice time. I, yeah, mean, I mean, you're not... The
1: games. The games. You watch... You I, Like, for instance... It killed me when Jacques Vaughn told you that the game plan was to let Thomas Bryant, you know, a 40% three-point shooter, shoot uncontested three after uncontested three. That's a problem. You can't give up open looks in the playoffs to anyone who knows how to shoot.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. But, I, yeah, I, I think we meant practice shooting in a different way. I well, meant that, for, for, teams for for are Thomas actually Bryant, getting to practice. For Thomas <laughs>
1: Bryant, that's, that's a practice shot. Yeah, Jared Allen deep in the paint, nobody running at you. Yeah, you know, and that's why he made four or five.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't doubt it. So, uh, sh- shooting's been up, scoring's been up. Um, yeah, I would imagine teams will be wholly engaged come playoff time, and Toronto was wholly engaged pretty much every game defensively. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a listen. Neither of those were going to be easy matchups. There was there was no easy matchup out there to be had for the Nets. There wasn't one.
1: Yeah. What do you think? Do you think they'll win a game?
2: I do. I, I do think they'll win a game. So what would that be? Match last
1: think. year. I thought they might win a game last year too. There was yeah. and it turned out to be the first one and I got my hopes up and then <laughs> Anyway, Brian Lewis of the New York Post, it's great to read your work again and chat with you again. Thank you. Thank you for giving me your time. And I hope to see you again at Barclays Center one of these days, Hopefully. right? Hopefully. Okay. Thank you, Brian.
2: All right. Thank you.
1: Again, that was Brian Lewis of the New York Post giving you his insights on the Nets' first round matchup with the Raptors. So before I go, want to circle back to one of the topics in the interview, which was the Nets' front court rotation. Folks, I'm really rooting for Justin Anderson to show up in these last two regular season games. Even if they're meaningless, though the Nets aren't playing anybody against Orlando today, fine. Anderson, just make some open shots. If you can do that, it would erase so much of my anxiety. I'm sorry, but I'm about to go off on another Timothy Lawu Cabrera haters role now. I mean, yes, TLC can get on hot three-point streaks, and yes, he's a wing. But, you know, before we call him a 3-and-D wing, can we see some D, please? This guy either gives his man too much space, or he's so close he's fouling him. There's just no defensive awareness. I'm telling you, one of the key points in the Clippers game was when TLC picked up his fifth foul late in the third quarter, and Vaughn had no choice but to put Anderson in. Nets were pretty much hanging by a thread at that point after, you know, they went up by more than 20 in the first half. And I know Anderson only played like seven minutes and posted a stat line that didn't really pop out, but he made an impact, man. I mean, he played with energy, you know, a toughness that teams need in games of greater consequence. You can hear him scream after getting his four rebounds and block two shots. And I looked at the way he was able to stay with Leonard on a few possessions, you know, where he was forced to deal with a pick and roll, I wish the Nets' guards could be forced to watch the video of that. I don't care that he only took one shot and opened corner three. He made it. If you keep making those, I'm begging the Nets, please get him more court time, even if it comes at TLC's expense. Look, I can't see any way that the Nets will win this series. I asked Brian Lewis if they could win a game, and he said sure. I agree. I mean, the bubble has been so wacky, why not? So, you know, my prediction is Raptors in five. And after that, the real fun, the offseason begins. But, unfortunately, this is the end of this episode. Special thanks again to Brian Lewis of the New York Post for his great insights. Uh, I expect to record again sometime during the series. I'll have to wait on the schedule. Follow me on Twitter for updates. And again... Thanks for your continued support while the station deals with the Apple podcast glitch. So until next time, this is Steve Lichtenstein from WFAN.com saying, get pumped for Nets playoff basketball, and thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive.